Welcome to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. Today, we'll hear more voices from our trip in August to Netroots Nation. It's billed as the largest gathering of progressives in the country, and it took place in Pittsburgh. Later in the show, we'll hear about the People's Parity Project. That's a nationwide network of law students and new attorneys who are organising to unrig the legal system and build a justice system that values people over profits. But first, David Daly is the author of several books, including Rat Eft and Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. Welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. We are in the great state of Pennsylvania. They have gotten a new redistricted map. It is being challenged at uh, the in the in the courts by the Republican leadership. Activists here are telling me they're pleased with this new map, but what's your sense? It's been a rough 10 years in Pennsylvania, right? At the state legislative side and then for a long time on the congressional side as well until the state Supreme Court stepped in and fixed that map. The next decade in Pennsylvania will look better, but as we know, that is a low bar. Uh, Democrats in this state have continued to win many more votes than Republican candidates, and yet they have not taken control of the state house here, either chamber, in more than a decade. So there is, I believe, a chance that on fairer maps in this next decade, that when Democrats win more votes, they will actually have a chance at winning more seats. Imagine that. Well, that is really the essence of what redistricting and gerrymandering is all about. And we often, I think, get lost in the terminology and assume people are up to speed and understand exactly what we're talking about. But let's get back to the, the nuts and bolts of this. We're talking about how legislative maps, whether it's for your state legislature, you know, representation or the federal maps, are drawn in a way to make it more advantageous towards certain parties. And so voters there are really getting full representation because they're locked into the system where, you know, does their vote even count unless they're, you know, part of this broader system? Is that a, a very lay person's no, description? That's exactly right. Redistricting and gerrymandering is really about partisan politicians selecting winners and losers for the next decade and then making themselves immune from the ballot box so that they can go ahead after that and push whatever extreme policies that they want, knowing that there is no recourse from the voters. Uh, And so we can talk about this on a really high plane, right? That it's about maps and technology and the census. Really what this is about is how your legislators put themselves in office permanently and then feel free to pass whatever crazy laws they then desire. So when you're looking at the state of reproductive rights in this country right now, it's not just states that we think of as bright red, Alabama and Oklahoma, where these bans are going into effect post Dobbs. It's it's happening in Ohio. Abortion is fundamentally illegal right now in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, There is a law from the 1930s on the books in Michigan that even though majorities in Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, want to protect abortion rights, there is nothing they can do because this legislature is so entrenched 
that even when Democrats win hundreds of thousands more votes statewide, Republicans hold power anyway. And not just any Republican, really extreme Republicans, the kinds of which come out of gerrymandered, uncompetitive districts when the only election that really matters is a far-right primary. I mean, this explains why so many people feel completely disconnected from the political process. Because when you look at surveys around attitudes towards reproductive freedom, or gun control is yes. another one, the vast majority of Americans want sensible legislation on both of those issues, just as an example. And yet the legislation that we're seeing passed is completely unrepresentative of that. Completely unrepresentative. Wisconsin's a great example of this. Uh, in Wisconsin, a Democratic governor has attempted to get sensible action on gun control that upwards of 70% of people in the state want. He has attempted to get sensitive action on reproductive freedom uh, that now a law from the 1840s has gone into effect, uh, a post-Dobbs that has effectively shut down every clinic in the state of Wisconsin. He has attempted to get action on on social justice after the, the episode in Kenosha where a white police officer shot a black man in the back several times. Uh, the gerrymandered legislature in Wisconsin has gaveled in and out of the special sessions that the governor has called on these issues, sometimes in as quick as 15 seconds. So they say, sure, we'll come in and meet. We're not going to do anything, though, because we don't have to. We are here. We are the permanent power structure. The voters be damned. Is this nationwide? You know, is this an affliction, gerrymandering, redistricting yeah. that's not representative? Is this happening in, in every state? To some it's sense? happening in many states. Really, much of this can be traced back to the 2010 election in which Republicans had a really focused strategy called REDMAP, the Redistricting Majority Project, which was designed to take control of state legislatures in swing states in a, in a midterm election that Republicans thought would be really advantageous right before lines were redrawn in every state after the 2010 census. So they locked in majorities in Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Texas, Indiana, they flipped Alabama in 2010, finally, and they drew lines on which Democrats have not managed to win back a single chamber since. In some of these states, we're going into a second decade of unrepresentative maps in purple swing states. That's a generation of entrenched GOP minority rule. Um, after the 2018 election, you had 59 million Americans living in a state in which one or both chamber of the state legislature was controlled by the party that won fewer votes that fall. In every single case, it was, um, it was Democrats winning more votes, Republicans holding control anyway. So what you're saying now making me think of this broader connection to other voting rights issues like the movement around the national popular vote, rank choice voting, all of these seek to have more representation when, when you cast your ballot, you're actually, that, that your vote will count as opposed to being in the system where, you know, you're chucking it into a void and it really, no. it's not representative. No, that's exactly right. Um, there are two movements going on right now, right? There is a movement to make it easier to vote 
and there's a movement to make it more difficult. Um, and in so many of these gerrymandered legislatures, they are leading the way on making it more difficult. Um, voters around the country are uh, trying to come up with strategies to do something about this. Uh, ranked choice voting in Maine and in Alaska. Uh, voters in Missouri and Michigan and Utah and, and Colorado working on a redistricting reform. Uh, Florida trying to expand access to the ballot to bring back into the system uh, the 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 many millions uh, of uh, uh, folks who have a, a felony conviction who have lost their right to vote permanently. And what we see on the other side uh, are efforts to counteract that, right? Effectively adding a poll tax onto that constitutional amendment in Florida, making it more difficult for those folks to register. In Ohio, uh, Republican politicians ignoring not only the will of the people that passed that constitutional amendment, but their own state Supreme Court that now has multiple times demanded uh, that they uh, pass constitutional maps and and this legislature and that commission has failed. And I think what's really important for people to understand is that how you use the word entrenched, how entrenched this becomes in our entire system. Because when you have these gerrymandered districts and then you get these gerrymandered state legislatures, they're the ones passing even more restrictive voting rights. And it does seem that all of this movement at a state level is, is, is what activists are paying attention to. And you mentioned several of the states there too. You know, of course, Pennsylvania, looking back at 2020, there were so many problems with that election. And yet the state legislature really did not take the action that was needed, you know, allowing the districts to tabulate the votes ahead of time. So you don't have those delays and then you don't have that gap where misinformation can flow into. I mean, there are so many problems. But looking ahead to the 2022 midterms, Dave, what is your gut sense on where how all of this will play out? It's super complicated and it's always dangerous to make predictions. What I would say is this, the national congressional map uh, is going to have fewer competitive districts than perhaps any time in our modern history. Uh, Democrats have got to defend a, a four seat majority in the US House. That is going to be extraordinarily tough given the new maps that have been passed in Texas and Georgia, in, in Florida and in Tennessee uh, that um, are, are going to really wipe away swings uh, districts and Democratic districts in some of those states. Uh, Democratic gerrymanders in places like Illinois and Oregon, Maryland are not going to be enough to, to counteract that. So control of the U.S. House could really uh, tip uh, based on gerrymandering. Uh, in states like Wisconsin and Ohio, you know, purplish states, uh, 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 maps are still going to be really uh, tipped one way. But in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania, in North Carolina, uh, you're going to see uh, slightly more competitive battlefields. I think these states are still going to lean slightly Republican, much less so than they did a decade ago. And here's hoping, at least, that elections matter and the party that wins the most votes actually has the ability to uh, rule. That's what consent of the governed and will of the people is all about. I mean, it does seem like it's such a partisan issue where yeah. we have Republican state, state legislatures are the ones enacting so many of these restrictions around voting. 
that are impacting very often democratic voters. But how do, say, folks like yourself and the organisers who were working at a very local level around this issue, how do they appeal to all voters, you know, to break through that messaging of, hey, well, my team's winning, so, you know, whatever it takes to win. You know, um, I think that that's the beauty of this issue is that it really does cut across a party lines because Americans want to see their vote count. In 2018, when redistricting reform was on the ballot, in Ohio, in Utah, in Colorado, in Michigan and Missouri, right? Those aren't all blue states. Those are states, various shades of purple and red. And reform won in all of those states. It was close in Utah, but everywhere else, more than 60%, some states upwards of 70%. So I, I would say in red states and blue states and purple states, Americans always hate uh, gerrymandering and politicians trying to lock themselves in power and put themselves ahead of the people. And I, I do believe that there is a way to message this on online, you know, uh, first on basic fairness, but then also on, on extremism. Uh, we all see laws being passed and then a gridlock and laws not being passed on, on issues where there is agreement. And as long as we have these broken politics, and as long as redistricting and voting rights plays such a big role in that, there is a way to talk about it that makes sense to the average voter. It seems the, the role of the courts needs mm. to be examined as well, because, <laughs> well, look at here in the state of Pennsylvania, where we're speaking right now, the state um, leader of the, the state Republicans, uh, the leader of the uh, Republican Party here in the state is challenging essentially this new redistricted map that is seen to be a lot fairer. So that's going into the courts. And the courts are making decisions on challenges to redistricting all around the country. So talk a little bit about that because it's all part of this whole, you know, interconnectivity of all these oh. different systems in our country. The, the courts are playing a crucial role in all of this. A crucial role, not always a positive role. Certainly the federal courts um, and the U.S. Supreme Court under under the Chief Justice, Mr. Roberts, um, a, a, that court has been a wrecking crew on voting rights for the last decade, uh, whether undermining the Voting Rights Act on multiple occasions, whether blessing the kinds of wild partisan gerrymanders that we have seen over these last couple of decades. Um, state Supreme Courts have been a mixed bag. Um, in places like North Carolina and Pennsylvania, state Supreme Courts have really stood up and defended the notion of, uh, of fair maps and free elections, and they've used uh, language in their state constitutions to uh, uh, knock down wildly gerrymandered maps and install new ones that have been much more fair. Um, on the other hand, state Supreme Courts in Florida, in Georgia, in Texas have been much less interested in this issue. Um, and what we're seeing right now is that Republicans have appealed effectively the decision of the North Carolina U.S. Supreme Court uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. This is a case called Moore versus Harper. Folks might have heard about having to do with something called the independent state legislative doctrine, which is a radical screwy theory that that suggests um, that state legislatures ought to have unfettered control over everything having to do with elections in their states, free from gubernatorial veto or state Supreme Court or other state constitutional oversight. 
Uh, and if the U.S. Supreme Court decides in favor of this radical, wild-eyed notion that Republicans have uh, tried to uh, create out of, out, of, out of phony originalist cloth, um, then it could really limit or eliminate the ability of state Supreme Courts in, in blue states, in purple states, to step up and do something about this. These are frightening uh, times, right? Um, American democracy is a, is a frog in the kettle. And that whistle you hear is that frog starting to, to boil. I mean, is there a bright spot in the fact that so many people are actually talking about how yes. our elections work? Because 100%. the events of the 2020 election, the misinformation, the lies around election fraud, and of course what happened on January 6th, shows a real basic misunderstanding of how our elections work. And so there really have been a lot of conversations happening. The bright spot here is that Americans now really clearly know what is happening to our, our elections, to our democracy from the state level on up. And if you have your eyes open at all, you can't help but see it. The, it's been said that it can't happen here. It's happening before our very eyes. We can see it happening. It's going to take a lot of hard work to stop it. But I think what is optimistic, if we can uh, find a bright line in all of this, is that there is a lot of effort, a lot of activism being focused on reworking this, rebuilding it from the ground up. So for people watching, maybe people listening, yes. who are concerned about this, they could be in one of those states that you mentioned, or maybe they're in a state that they're not quite as concerned about, but they want to support others in other states. How do they get involved in this? Boy, there are a lot of groups working on all of these issues. Um, and you ought to find the one in your own state. If you're in Georgia, the uh, New Georgia Project is working on this. If you're in Wisconsin, the Democratic Party there has been really active. In North Carolina, there's been all kinds of citizen movements from Reverend Barber's Moral Mondays through Common Causes lawsuits. There are lots and lots of good people in good states fighting the fight and trying to uh, rebuild democracy from the ground up. There's run for something, trying to encourage young vote, uh, uh, young candidates, candidates of color, uh, millennials to run for these local election board offices even that are going to be so crucial in certifying elections. There's sister district and forward majority working on all of this. There is a branch in your state and you can find them. That was Dave Daly, author of Rat Eft and Unrigged, speaking to us at Netroots Nation, which took place in Pittsburgh this past August. You're listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. Up next, we'll hear from Tristan Brown of the People's Parity Project. So the People's Parity Project, we're a nationwide network of mostly law students and lawyers who work to organize um, to unrig the, the legal system in its various forms. Um, the issues that we most focus on um, are reforming the judiciary, um, both at the state and federal level, um, and also worker power issues, including just cause advocacy and ending things like forced arbitration and coercive contracts. Um, so the work that we're doing, I think, is incredibly exciting. Um, like you mentioned, it's incredibly important. Important, um, and it's really unique in the sense that we are using mostly or we have mostly lawyers and law students organizing with us to do that work. So it's transformation from the inside. Yes. 
Well, there are some terms you use that maybe people aren't going to be sure. familiar with. <laughs> what is, especially around the labour rights issues. Yeah. Talk us through exactly what those mean and, and how they impact workers. Yeah, so for example, with forced arbitration, um, that is just something where, especially in the workplace context, um, you may be forced uh, to sign a contract or you're not forced to, but it's certainly not obvious to people who, um, you know, who are lay, layman's people um, when they're signing these contracts, especially folks who are just trying to get um, employment and make a living. Um, but in the event that something happens where they're not able to uh, seek relief in the court system, they have to arbitrate um, with someone who is chosen usually by the employer. Um, and usually that means that it's not going to be a good outcome for the employee who's trying to seek um, reprieve or some redress um, for something that's happened unlawfully or discriminatory um, to an employer. So forced arbitration, a big um, thing that's happened recently, um, at least President Biden, it passed in the Senate, um, has signed into law ending forced arbitration in the context for sexual harassment survivors. Um, but at the People's Parity Project, it is our hope to just end it completely for everyone um, in all of its context. It reminds me of a lot of the work being done uh, to have representation for people facing evictions. Yeah. It's so loaded and rigged against the corporations yeah. and the corporate landowners. People yeah. are showing up much like how you described with workers without any context, without yeah. any representation. Yep. Yeah. Um, and on that note, um, I think in the work that we're doing with the judiciary reform, when you bring up you know this idea about just things being dominated by corporate power, um, with the judiciary, we hope with that work that the folks who are appointed or nominated to be on the bench both at the state and federal level we're trying to make it such that we're transforming benches to not be oversaturated with former prosecutors and former corporate attorneys knowing that there is some type of correlation between that lived experience and the outcomes that folks in court see um, when we have judges who have those previous backgrounds and so we're also excited about the work that we're doing um, to encourage folks like the White House um, and states in um, various states to put public interest attorneys um, on the bench so we can see more housing attorneys become judges, more civil rights attorneys, voting rights attorneys, environmental attorneys, so on and so forth. You know, what you're describing there reminds me a lot of the conversations that happened around the most recent appointment to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And when um, Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson yeah. was appointed, there was a lot made, of course, she's the first black woman, but yes. also her lived experience yes. and the fact that she was a public defender and yep. so much of that, the fact that we have such a lack of diversity of lived experiences, yep. of racial and ethnic experience, of religion, yep. of gender, all of that. Yeah. It's so important to have that representation in all aspects yep. of the justice system. Yeah, I think that's totally right. Um, and it's been really encouraging to see more recently this expansion of diversity, not only in the demographic context, but in the professional sense, um, because obviously demographic diversity is incredibly important but as I was saying having that professional diversity also expands the perspectives um, of lived experiences of professional experiences of the many many backgrounds that one can have particularly um, in the legal field um, and that just really expands I think the opportunity for folks who are coming to seek relief especially in our court systems to have someone at the helm or at the bench who can really hear their case fairly who may be able to understand more based on their professional experiences where a litigant is coming from um, and able to really hand out justice in a more fair way than we're saying usually. How did you get involved and why? So I am a recovering lawyer, as most lawyers are. Um, prior to uh, being at the People's Parity Project, I was doing civil rights impact litigation. And so it was really, really cool for me to find out about uh, PPP as we're affectionately known um, and just knowing from 
you know, the experience I had as a practicing attorney and how difficult it is for litigants who are seeking relief in courts and even how difficult it is for attorneys who are bringing these cases um, based on the laws that we have, based on the jurists that we have, um, to really, really make sure that we have outcomes that are fair um, and just for the little person. Um, and so finding out about the People's Parity Project and having the opportunity to become involved um, and do this work um, through policy advocacy was really, really exciting to me and I'm really, really glad that I'm here to do it. It's very exciting that you have law students on board. Yes. Because I would imagine, now you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when a lot of people are going into law school, they maybe have, you know, real concrete ideas of justice and yes. what they want to do. And then, as you said, you're a recovering lawyer. That gives <laughs> a sense that you maybe get a bit disillusioned yes. with the entire system. So to get early career and certain, yeah. you know, right at the beginning of yeah. folks' folks journey into law yeah it seems really important yeah definitely and it's also not uncommon to see you know folks who go to law school right and they go to law school with the hopes of making a difference or making a change you always hear that and then they get into these schools um, that are usually conditioning students or you know forcing students especially those who need that economic um, advantage that going to a private practice may give them um, you see students suffering from what we call a public interest drift where you start out with the hopes of doing something and then through various factors um, and the lack of support and resources um, for public interest students, um, students start kind of being pushed slowly um, to corporate work, to prosecutorial work, um, and then just kind of like abandon their dreams and hopes of really um, getting into the law to do the things that they want to do. And so by having various student chapters um, at various law schools, it's our hope to kind of intercept those students and also provide the resource and the infrastructure to help them stay committed to that um, so they they can go through law school and start their careers doing what they really want to do um, and ultimately and hopefully organize with us long beyond law school um, to really unrig the legal system. Do you think the fact that so many law students, early career lawyers, attorneys end up in the corporate world, that's also connected to the fact that it's so expensive yes. to go to college and so you might have all the ideals and aspirations to end up in some type of public service position, yep. but you can't afford to do it because you've sh you're, you're shackled yeah. with potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt, particularly from students coming from less economically advantaged backgrounds. Yep. Um, that's totally right, um, and so we definitely, and I certainly don't hold it against students who end up floating into those areas. I think it's our responsibility um, and the responsibility certainly of law schools to help support students um, financially, especially those who are public interest students, the same way that uh, students who go to private practice um, summer jobs, um, they get tons of money for those summers um, to make sure that we're providing that same support and those financial resources for students so they don't find themselves in a situation where they're ultimately forced to choose between something they really, really want to do um, and something that's not as appealing, but something that seems more um, helpful for their survival, survival quite frankly. Um, I don't think it's fair to put students in that predicament. Um, and for, for schools who claim to be committed to public service and to public interest and doing good and making sure that students are leaving law school specifically with degrees in hand to you know make the world a better place, um, we need to be kind of doing <laughs> more than just saying that um, and really walking the walk so students can really leave law schools doing what it is that they want to do and doing um, what will hopefully uh, help everybody in the world, um, you know, who are, who are struggling um, in these various areas or with these various issues. Um, so, yeah. If someone's watching now, maybe they're a law student, maybe they know a law student or yeah. a future law student or, as you said, 
yourself a recovering lawyer <laughs> and they want to connect with an organization like yours and get that kind of support yeah and that kind of injection of optimism about what can be achieved in the law system yeah what should they do they should definitely hit us up <laughs> um, if, if you are a law student or a lawyer um, who's interested in organizing around any of the issues that I've mentioned um, we're always happy to welcome more people into our tent um, we're on social media you can follow us on Twitter at people's parity um, or you can email us at hello at people's parity.org um, to get involved in any of our working groups to start a law school chapter um, and we're happy to help you um, if you're interested in working with us Tristan Brown, People's Parity Project. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Tristan Brown of the People's Parity Project. You can find out more about their work at peoplesparity.org. Earlier in the show, we heard from author Dave Daly and we spoke with both of our guests at Netroots Nation. It took place in Pittsburgh this past August. You've been listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. Find out more about the show and watch past episodes at freespeech.org. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.